What happened? Well, with the show's about to start. Yeah. What happened is the question. <laughs> Evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight uh, on another Dispatch Live. We are here with David French, Jonah Goldberg, Sarah Isker, and a special guest with Sarah. <laughs> you want to make the introduction, Sarah? I think many people probably can guess who this is. Uh, this is the brisket. It's Nate. It's also bedtime. Um, and instead of going to bed, he said he wanted to come to work. And when I asked him what he thought I did for work, he started doing this on the couch. So <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. Can I did not hi? know you used the old hunt and peck method. Is that really how you type? My my laptop is on a rolling suitcase, which is why you are moving on wheels right now. But okay, Nate, I think I think it's time. I think you've you've done your part here. Did you wanna hey, did you wanna sing happy birthday? One more time to David. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. <laughs> this is the content. <laughs> I'm not supposed to. <laughs> Don't finish the song, Mom. All right, he's off. That's he's good. Off. That's good. That was fun. This is this. We we hope you stick with us for longer than Nate did um, <laughs> tonight. Uh, we promise to to keep it interesting. Um, we're glad you joined us. This is um, David's last show as a full time dispatch employee, which makes us sad. But it's definitely not David's last visit with us, mm -mm. Um, as we pointed out in the morning dispatch and the various things we've sent about uh, David's imminent departure to the New York Times. He is going to be continuing to uh, join Sarah on Advisory Opinions, our niche legal podcast, and uh, we'll be making occasional but regular appearances here and on the dispatch podcast as well. So um, David is moving on, but not entirely leaving us. Well, but he will he will never be on the remnant again. Just to be clear, <laughs> I don't, I don't blame you. Birthday. Wait, you mentioned it's his birthday. <laughs> well, I've been, but I have been, I haven't been on the remnant in months and months, like probably more than a year. So I, apparently, I was shadow banned. Uh, no comment. <laughs> but That's I'm funny, I like, I've been on a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. But Steve, I like to say that I'm still still part of the TDEU, the Dispatch Extended Universe. Steve has so, no idea what that means. Yeah. No, he has no clue. Yeah, I'm but. sure it's a science fiction thing of some kind or another. <laughs> nope. Nope. The rest of you. Nope. No. Not nope. really. Not. No. Nope. Not, not really. No. Okay. Well, yeah, you're right. I don't know, um, and I I don't feel particularly bad about. It. Um. So we're going to talk about a number of things. We have I have made the uh, the um, editorial decision that we will probably skip the debt ceiling negotiations. There's not a lot happening. Um. It's not a very dynamic topic um if you'd like us to talk about it let us know um in the chat and we can gin up a question or two or you can feed us a question or two but i think otherwise we'll focus on some other issues today uh and among those and the place that we will start is with this very interesting arrest of charles mcgonagall uh, hmm. a senior fbi counterintelligence official in new york city um arrested for well I'll let Sarah get into the actual details and I will we don't do a lot of disclosing what happens in our slack channels uh to the general public or or here but I will let you know that when this happened Sarah jumped into the group slack and said this is a huge deal this will hit really hard um in particular at the justice department but it's a big deal so sarah can i charge there was you? more cursing than that but yeah fine whatever <laughs> i clean it up jonah yeah, i clean yeah. it up look i mean if if so first can you world... tell us what tell can you just first tell us what happened yeah and then we'll get into the significance and sort of why sure. it's a big deal and let me just preface this by saying everything I'm about to say are allegations from the indictment. They have not been proven, yada, yada. So rather than say allegedly before everything, I'm just going to put this blanket preface um, at the front end. Uh, but 
the former head of counterintelligence for the Southern District of New York, which is, you know, the premier office much to everyone's chagrin, but it's nevertheless true at the Department of Justice. Uh, it's often called the Sovereign District of New York, ha ha ha, because they don't listen to anyone. Um, you know, it's the it's the creme de la creme. It's you know the the mothership of U.S. attorneys' offices. He was the head of counterintelligence there, and he has been charged um, with a series of crimes related to taking money from a Russian oligarch who he was supposed to be investigating in order to investigate one of the oligarch's enemies. Um, so some of this is money laundering, some of it's sanctions violations. The, the charges are sort of various and sundry. But if we were to, you know, behind a veil of ignorance, rate news stories on their actual impact this is a much bigger news story than the classified documents, frankly. Um, this is the heart of the Department of Justice's work. It's corruption. I mean, you think back to some of the spy cases. Yeah, who, David will remember this, um, the, the CIA guy right at the turn of the, the aughts there. Aldrich James. Was it him? James, anyway, there were the like FBI. a couple of these guys. James um, Hansen yeah. was the other one. Yes, Hansen was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah he was FBI. You're right. Um, those were considered such huge deals, so much so that we remember their names. This is of that significance, and it's not really even close. I think because we are out of that, the Cold War echoes and reverberations, we don't feel it as much. But this is one of the most senior national security people in the country who is alleged to have been taking money from the bad guys. Um, he's being represented, interestingly, by the former PADAG. I've talked about this on <laughs> advisory opinions a lot. So the principal associate deputy attorney general is sort of the COO of the Department of Justice. The attorney general is the one who gives speeches and is the, you know, the queen, if you will. The DAG is the prime minister, the deputy attorney general. The PADAG is the one doing all the stuff. Uh, so it's interesting that the PADAG, the former PADAG uh, at the end of the Trump administration, uh, under Bill Barr, considered highly competent, you know, very, very good attorney, um, that he's taken on this as a case. So again, these are all allegations. Who knows? But I will say the one thing in the indictment that I think a lot of DOJ people are focusing on is this money was being moved around a lot. And if you were taking money on the up and up, why would you be funneling it through other sources? So it's really bad for the Department of Justice. It's um, it's terrible for the Southern District of New York. I think it's bad for our work against the Russians, um, obviously. And this is like a notorious, this wasn't like some random oligarch. This is like the bad guy. If it's you were going to name a Russian oligarch, yes, he's <laughs> probably, Oleg Deripaska is probably the one you would name. Like other than Vladimir Putin, he might be the most famous bad guy Russian in the country, in our country, yeah. I mean. Um, so it's just, it's incredible that it has not gotten the attention, I think, because of the classified document stuff that's taking up a lot of that bandwidth. But I think it is the biggest news story of the last several years. I also David, I think is she right? Get, I hundred I, percent I agree. And I also think it doesn't get the attention that it should get because it doesn't have a specific partisan angle attached to it. There's no culture and, war here. <laughs> there's no what, what the and it's so depressing. Yeah. It's yeah. so depressing. So I, you know, I can remember at the height of the Cold War when you would get these spy scandals, and they were just incredible incredibly dispiriting the notion that somebody's just going to sell out their country for you know what was the number here 200 225 thousand dollars and he's dedicated his life to this work it's not like david do you mean to suggest that if you're going to sell out your country you do it for a much higher number <laughs> i mean it's <laughs> it's you know, that the, great line from a man of all seasons it profit a man nothing to sell his soul for the world but whales <laughs> right but two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> right i know it's just it, it's just depressing on every front. And then the thing is, the thing that always triggers in my mind when I hear this is you you never should assume that, well, we've caught the only guy out there 
taking money. The That's only what made one. me really sad about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And Jonah, what you know, are what what are you what do you see as the political implications here? I mean, Sarah alluded to it briefly, but this comes at a time when the FBI is at the center of these partisan baits, actually. And while this particular um indictment doesn't necessarily have an obvious political angle in the broader argument you've had a pretty sustained attack on the fbi by republicans and in particular donald trump as corrupt you've certainly had democrats weigh in at times in the context of hillary clinton um what are the implications of this politically and and should we be as concerned as it sounds like sarah is yeah i mean so i I see a couple of different angles on this. One is um, just on the, you know, and I know you're joking when, you know, you said he should have sold out his country for a lot more money, <laughs> but there is a, there is a weird thing about that. Right. I mean, like mm-hmm. taking a bribe, the risk reward and taking a bribe for a thousand dollars. It's just like, you know, you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose my pension. I'm not going to risk losing my, my job for a thousand dollars. But someone says a billion dollars. You're like, let me let me work through this a little bit. I mean, like, and so, like, the weird thing about it is, if, if the numbers are actually that low, and I don't mean to like poo-poo for a lot of people, two hundred thousand dollars is a huge amount of money, but not for a guy who could tomorrow have gone and worked at any number of law firms, gone in as right. a partner, yeah, and done all sorts of boutique stuff. And I talked to a prominent lawyer I'm a friend with, um, who's not on this Zoom call, um, uh. <laughs> who says he knows lots of lawyers who've done work for Durberskaya. Der, Der I can never say his name. The thing is, you got to go and you got to call and you got to say, I'm representing him to, to challenge the sanctions that are being applied to him. You have to register that that's what you're doing, that kind of work right. that you're doing. He clearly wasn't doing anything like that. And again, he was working for the FBI. More broadly, I, I agree that like in a lot of ways, this is a more troubling and disturbing story and newsier than classified documents thing. But it's, I think particularly with today's news, which I assume we're going to get to about Pence having classified documents, I think the idea that the impression that our, basically our national security complex is just incompetent and shot through with people not taking things seriously um, is going to be really, that's going to be the narrative coming out of this, right? I mean, we now have a situation where, like, when the news broke about Pence, uh, my wife, who, you know, when she worked at uh, DOJ and at the UN or at the State Department, the number, the amount of pressure and threats she got about, like, if you leave anything classified on your desk, you know, any of this kind of stuff, you'll be fired, your career will be low over, you'll be escorted out of here in handcuffs, blah, blah, blah. If we now have this system where the political class is either taking bribes to help Russian oligarchs <laughs> or are the professional classes and the political class just simply has a different standard, it really makes it, 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 it is enticing to a lot of foreign um, intelligence agencies and, and foreign opponents that says these guys really don't have their act together. Yeah. And it is so demoralizing taking in total for the rank and file who do this real work. Um, so I, I think, I mean, the good news is, is that Congress is responsible, sober-minded, and <laughs> dedicated to uh, making this country a better place. So we could really have some really excellent bipartisan professional hearings that sort of get to the bottom of this and how to propose systemic reforms that deal with all of that. Um, but, you know, maybe that won't happen. So um, we do want to get to to the the documents mass now the bipartisan um, multifaceted document mass, yeah. um, which is which I do think is important. Um, although I I think I will join the consensus here and suggest that that um, this this news is is more important I think and more troubling in, in certain ways. What do we make of the fact, picking up on Jonah's point about what our enemies see when they look at us and they see something like this? I mean, clearly they are the ones trying to um, to subvert our democracy, trying to 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 win over converts, trying to get people to turn on the country. Um, so they know that this is possible. This has been happening for years. But what does it say, David, when you have someone 
who not only worked at a senior level in the FBI, but worked in counterintelligence. I mean, that's the job, right? I mean, yeah, this is yeah. this is part of the the irony. I think one of the things that makes it as worrisome as it is. Yeah, you know, it's possible that our enemies are saying, darn, they're catching on as to how incompetent they've been for the last decade. You know, it's I don't think our carelessness is news to our enemies. It's obviously in right. in our corruption is news to our enemies. It's obviously not news to a particular Russian oligarch, right? Um, it might so, be news to some of our friends, though, which is almost as bad. Yeah, no, that's I I agree with that completely. I think what we might be doing is really shocking a lot of our allies and realizing that and they're realizing perhaps that they had some vulnerabilities they didn't think they had when they were, you know, when they were communicating with us. I don't think any of this surprises our enemies at all. Um, you know, I think, you know, the the Russian the Russian state is not necessarily incredibly proficient on the battlefield at times, but it's always been pretty darn proficient in intelligence and counterintelligence. Um, Chinese, similarly, are pretty darn proficient in all of this. And I, I got to put in our plug for advisory opinions right now because we had Rod Rosenstein, Steen, Stein. Friends of Frankenstein. Rod, Rod Rosenstein on and he brought up something an angle to this that i thought was really uh, useful and he was saying look when you're talking about handling of classified information now this doesn't apply to the the bribery scandal this was an f this was a guy who who there's just nothing i mean it's just rotten on every from every angle but he was saying I had made this distinction between military and civilian handling of classified information. And I said, from a military, my experience with handling classified information is in the military context. And in that context, the way in which classified information has been handled by many of these pol politicians is just extraordinarily negligent at best. And he said, he, he said, don't necessarily think of it as military and civilian. Think of it, military, civilian, and the political classes that in the FBI, in Department, State Department, in sort of the professional, um, in the professional part of the civilian bureaucracy, you've got a lot of people who fully, fully understand and have been trained and brought up in, in their careers, handling of classified information properly. These political folks come in and they, or their staffs or whatever, are coming completely from outside they're not sufficiently trained. They are not acculturated into the proper handling of classified information. And quite frankly, they can be really cavalier with it, as we've seen. And what's so damaging about that is the more prominent a person is, like a Pence, like a Biden, like a Clinton, Hillary Clinton, like a Trump, the more precious the secrets they're seeing, the more sensitive the secrets they're seeing. So this incredibly cavalier culture has been built up around some of our nation's most important secrets and the best the the only silver lining here is perhaps we can be shocked into some culture change i don't know not super optimistic but it's a possibility i'm at this point and you know we've only had the pence news for you know less than a day but at this point we really need to separate out the legal side of this and just say, break, break, the maybe president through the attorney general, because it'd be a little weird for Biden to do this himself, maybe. Um, and I, I'm not in favor of a bunch of czars running around the federal government. But if there was ever a case to have a czar takeover, building a new process from scratch of how to handle classified material, mm -hmm. track classified material, train on classified material, I mean, there's just some glaring things here. Biden has something from the Senate. Senators don't get to take classified material into their offices, let alone right. home with them. How? Like senators come into a reading room that is set up by a national security agency. You know, DOJ, we would set up a reading room. Now, sometimes we would do it at the Senate SCIF because they have secure facilities on the Senate premises. A lot of the times we make them come to us, but regardless, we would basically be our, you know, skiff. We would set up a reading room with that specific information in it. The senators could come in, read that information, 
And then they can leave the room. The end. How did stuff leave on Biden's person? That doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, the, the Pence part of this, I just think maybe this is uh, a little unfair culturally or something. It feels like Donald Trump is the type of person who would do this on purpose, right? Who cares if they're classified? They're my documents. Joe Biden's the type of person who's just kind of sloppy and <laughs> doesn't pay a lot of attention to the details. But frankly, I agree with what Donald Trump said when this news broke about Mike Pence. Mike Pence has never broken a rule intentionally in his entire life. <laughs> so if he did this wrong, then we've got a different problem here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's something to that. And I think at this point, we separate from any of the legal stuff, we got to solve a different problem now. SCIF is a sensitive compartmented information facility. They have them on Capitol Hill. They have them uh, elsewhere throughout government. If you've ever been in a SCIF, just to give people a sense of how secure it is, you can't bring in a cell phone. You can't bring any recording device. You have to check it. You get a number, you check it at the door. They put it in a box, lock it up. You get a number, you go in, you get your briefing or look at the documents, do whatever you come out. You retrieve your personal effects, including a phone um, and you leave. So not only can you not walk out with the actual documents themselves, you can't take anything in with you that would allow you to somehow capture the documents or even record what well, it is that you are Sandy Berger seeing. brought his pants in. That was enough. <laughs> Well, that's true. That was also pro <laughs> problem. When they said that they seized some of Joe Biden's notes, I assume they haven't specified. But when you do go into one of those rooms, you can sometimes take notes. You have to leave those notes. Those notes are then classified because you're taking notes on a classified briefing. So presumably when they say they took some of Joe Biden's handwritten notes, they're talking about handwritten notes from classified briefings. But here's here here's a question I have. I'll just throw it up to all three of you. I mean, David, I take your point about the political class coming in and not maybe appreciating in the same way that intelligence professionals do, or people have been military professionals, people have been trained on this and had this drummed into them from the beginning. You treat sensitive information, classified information a certain way. And if you don't, there are real punishments for it. Part of the problem, it, it seems to me, is that there haven't been real punishment when we've seen yeah. this mishand mishandling and mishandling is sort of the euphemism of the month, right? Because some of this stuff really isn't mishandling. I think it's, it's, it's um, maybe reckless. Some of it, obviously, I think in the case of Donald Trump, uh, very, very deliberate, this was not mishandling anything, it right. was deliberate uh, <laughs> absconding with, with these documents. But at the same time, I can't tell you, I spent a lot of my, my reporting career covering intelligence and national security matters. I cannot tell you the number of times I've dealt with a political official or a staff person who will stop a conversation if he or she thinks we're getting anywhere near something classified and say to me, I can't, I can't talk about this. Reroute the conversation, go in a different direction, or just simply refuse to provide information because they understand that this is getting near something that's classified. How do you reconcile that? I mean, of course, this is just my personal experience and it, you don't want to extrapolate too much from it, but it's not like they're never told, hey, by the way, this stuff with TCI at the top, be a little careful of it. I mean, they get they get this. I mean, yes, of course they do. So <laughs> the issue isn't, oh, those poor deers don't know what's what. The issue is this is a there is a culture, a cavalier culture that exists in parts, not everywhere, but in parts of American politics that doesn't exist in other parts of the American government. And I, I put it this way earlier today. I said, when you reach a certain level, it is easy to be cavalier with classified information. Um, you can do it. It's relatively easy. It, you know, Secretary of when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, it was easy for her to write emails back and forth with her subordinates that contain classified information. That it was easy for her to do that. But it's also really easy not to do it. So, and right. And so what what's happened is we have had uh, politicians and and their you know the people around them who they're just cavalier. 
they 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 have the ability um, in a way that, say, an ordinary soldier or ordinary member of the FBI, when dealing with classified information, because of their because of either where they are or because of the their the the power that they wield, they get things and they're able to see things in formats and in places that other people aren't, and they just abuse the privilege. They just abuse it. They're cavalier with it, and yeah. and I say that not to excuse them at all. This is an indictment, not an excuse, because you know what? It's it's super, super easy to be respectful of classified information. And even in difficult environments, like when I was in Iraq, it would have been easy for me to come home with, I had this thumb drive that was a secret, that had secret classified information on it. And I had a not unclassified thumb drive. And one of them, I was required to leave in theater in a secure, you know, in uh, to, to secure it before I redeployed back home. Nobody frisked me. You know, I in theory, I could have just waltzed right out with it. But it was really easy to do the right thing and just hand that over. And this is this is where we are time and time again, is it's really easy to do the right thing. And, and if we remember all the way back to the Hillary Clinton situation, one of the things that came up was members of her staff were saying, well, you know, we'd have decisions we'd have to make over the holidays. And you wouldn't want us to head to a skiff, you know, leave, leave the dinner and go to a skiff. Well, yes, yes. Right. You were not conscripted into that position. You were not drafted. Right. And even if you are drafted, you got to go to the skiff. <laughs> so that that's my issue is there is a cult, a cavalier culture, and that's not an excuse. It's an indictment. Jonah, one Steve. of the things that we hear a lot about is uh, overclassification. Um, it's been a part of the discussion both in the context of the the Trump mess and the and the Biden mess, I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about overclassification. Now, I think it's a real problem. Uh, our friend Jack Goldsmith, who's a, a professor of law at Harvard, uh, has written uh, some pieces for the Dispatch in the past. Has a piece out in the New York Times tonight, um, dealing with this and suggesting, again, like David, not excusing. The behavior of the people who have who have uh, who are at the center of this mess, but at the same time talking about the problem that is overclassification. How serious is the problem in your mind, and do you think that this likely becomes a, a a part of the a bigger part of the discussion? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let's just say that it's always weird and kind of inexplicable when dispatch writers go right for the new york times like jack goldsmith is you know and well, you know what Every, um, everybody's everybody's gotta gotta punch down or you know do what do what they can to make a buck right um so uh yeah look i mean look it was pat Moynihan who wrote a whole book on uh the explosion of secrecy and why it's a problem i think it's a real problem i have really tried to avoid having exactly this conversation because it sounds like letting these people off the hook, right? You know, it mm -hmm. just, it feels like it politically, it works that advantage. The fact that you didn't hear a single Democrat anywhere say anything about overclassification until Biden got in trouble. And then all of a sudden overclassification is a huge problem, right? One of my favorite things is like the Washington Post and a couple of other big news outlets started doing these pieces in anticipation of Trump getting charged with something about how ordinary Americans um, in the military or in the government um, have gotten stiff jail sentences for doing far less than what Donald Trump did. And then boom, the second, and like the whole point being like, so we got to hold this guy accountable, but boom, the second Biden gets into trouble, those stories either disappear or get turned into this is this see this is a problem for like normal people too we got to let biden off the hook cut him some slack right and i so i i, I don't like the re, the motivations for a lot of people who are bringing it up i know that's not you know why you're bringing it up um although you know you'll do anything to cover for pence um <laughs> but uh i think it's a huge problem and it gets it it gets at david's point about this culture of complacence right uh, how many times have I ranted, at least on my podcast, on, on my flagship podcast, about how um, complexity is a subsidy, right? That the more complex you make society, the more you reward people who have either the cognitive, social, or some other, or political capital to navigate complexity, and you screw the guy on the other side. Well, secrecy is another kind of subsidy. 
and the degree to which we have a whole bunch of people in government and in in the in 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 the in the sort of modern capitalist economy in general whose whole job is just simply manipulating words and concepts whole having proprietary ownership of words and concepts and information and all that kind of thing and so there is a natural tendency to try to inflate the value of the information you have by giving it a better brand and i think that's what happens with a lot of classification you have a pretty boring job if all the information you deal with isn't classified it's much cooler the more classified it gets and i think that's a natural human tendency um and the problem is i think it le- it contributes to the sclerosis of government so i'm i'm totally yeah. with sarah on this i don't know if it's a czar or or what but like i would be in favor of scrapping basically the entire system of classification in this country coming up with a more streamlined thing which is like one thing which is like super serious the other thing which is sort of serious and the other thing is be careful um <laughs> and uh and starting from scratch because and i did think this in the wake of the trump marlaga stuff because it is bizarre when i when when sarah and david would do these podcasts sort of walking people through how where the authorities for this that or the other thing come from and if it's nuclear you just get to arrest people because it's just its own thing. And it's very Byzantine, very medieval in a lot of it. And um, it's time to update a lot of it. You know, even the stuff that made sense in the Cold War, it doesn't necessarily make sense now. And streamline it and be really serious about it. And then the next time an important politician, whether it's a Trump, a Biden, a Petraeus, um, runs afoul of it, throw the book at them. And even if it means sending them to jail, because that's the only way you're going to restore faith and confidence in this stuff. Like it is going to be, I mean, Sarah and David are better at this than I know more about this stuff than I do. But right now on this issue climate, post Hillary, never mind post Sandy Berger, post Trump, post Biden, post Pence, do you want to be a prosecutor trying to prosecute anybody for uh, illegally mishandling classified information? I mean, like there's not a jury mm-hmm. out there. Who isn't going to be susceptible to the argument? Well, it was okay for Trump and Biden and Hillary and Pence and pick your poison, you know, or or Petraeus or whoever. But this guy who makes sixty five thousand dollars a year and lives in you know in in um, your hometown, you got to send him to jail for ten years. That's craziness. And if you can't prosecute anybody for mishandling classified information, classified classified information doesn't classification doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, I will. Um, I will. Steve, we had a few questions from the comment section that I thought were worth addressing quickly. By all uh, means. So Amy, for instance, asked, why isn't there a tracking of documents, like checking out of the library? Shouldn't someone see that the documents aren't returned? Is that how the National Archives was looking for Trump? No, the National Archives just got an anonymous tip that Trump had classified documents. There is no tracking system. And I know that sounds bizarre. And I, my dad has been like, what do you mean there's no tracking system? And I'm like, I don't know how else to explain it to you. There's no tracking system, in part because the authority to classify documents is pretty dispersed, all things considered. And so you'd have to create a way for then each person with classification authority to have to input when they classified something. And it's not, you know, they're not necessarily individual documents. There's anyway, I'm not also, saying it's photocopiers exist, right? So like you could True. check out the library model, right? Check out the document, but make a copy of it, you know, and then everyone, True. Oh, oh, I mean, the original documents here, you know, I think there is probably a way to do it. It's just, again, you'd have to start from scratch. You need to redo the entire system, which I think is worth doing, but um, it's a smart question. Uh, have the four folks on this call search their home for classified docs. I mean, honestly, I had so many calls with old DOJ friends today. Where we're like, should I come search your home? Do you want to search? Your home? <laughs> that was like a fun game that we all. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm certain I have classified documents in my house right now, but I'm a reporter. So, <laughs> <laughs> so tough luck. Different stage. Um, yeah. I do think it's an interesting question. You know, the Pence thing happened several days ago. Um, that the uh, Department of Justice and FBI went to search his house after he had asked his own lawyers to search his house. By the way, that answers your question, Michael, of why he didn't shred the documents. I thought burning would be better, but your idea of shredding is just fine. Um, You don't enter into a conspiracy with other humans. Like if he had found them, (laughs) 
maybe. Um, but at the point that anyone else finds these documents, there's no more shredding really that's going to be allowed or that person now is uh, is going to be having a lot of favors called into you. Um, Although, so, unless you're Dick Cheney and he's got his classified documents, he shreds the people who find them. That's right. <laughs> you have the document shredder and the human shredder. Yeah, like in Fargo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the wood chipper. Um, I really wonder fast. whether there actually will be teams sent to or have already been sent to, frankly, um, Barack Obama's home, Dick Cheney's home, George Bush's home. Like the fact that this just happened relatively recently with Pence means we may not be done with this story. Yeah, I know. So Sarah, so, just comment, fingers crossed. Is there any chance that a 98 year old Jimmy Carter gets the perp walk? Wait, what was the, next, what was the thing that someone said? Jimmy Carter has classified documents in his heart. <laughs> can I can I speak to the overclassification for a minute? I don't yeah. think there's any way around it for this reason, because what you the way the systems the computer systems are set up is that non-classified and classified systems are in they don't communicate they don't exist in the same cyber universe so if i'm working on a classified system and that's where i am and that's what i'm working on that becomes my default method of communication throughout the day say so everything i write becomes classified because it's on a classified system right. and so what ends up happening just that the the soundness of setting up the two separate systems leads invariably to those who spend most of their day working on classified information communicating mundane things through classified systems and so to to kind of deal with overclassification you would really need to have relatively routine uh, surveys or reviews of mass amounts of documents to separate, oh, this is a, a birthday greeting. This is a grocery list. This is a bomb damage assessment from, you know, <laughs> Crimea like that. And so there, th but that's just the way, and we have, and because we have such a vast, and, and I hate to use this phrase, but it's true, vast military industrial complex. We are the arsenal of democracy. We are the military technological innovators of the world by and large. We have a huge, a, a need for a huge classified, uh, you know, a huge ecosystem of classified information. I mean, think about the B-21 Raider stealth bomber. Think about how many people to design that thing have to be working in classified spaces all day, every day. And so I think overclassification is a problem. I don't think it's a solvable solvable problem, but what I do think is a solvable problem is systemic mishandling of classified information. Tell me as a skeptic of the of the czar proposal. Um, it seems to me that in the past, most of our efforts to streamline how our intelligence community works, including the Department of uh, National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security and others, end up adding to the bureaucracy and exacerbating those problems rather than solving them yeah i um, I, 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 I said i was skeptical of the czar thing I, I i think but i think sarah's larger point was correct what we what you actually just need is new legislation right you just you need to rewrite the code um for how this stuff works in a serious way and that is and, and thank god providence has delivered to us Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates to do exactly that because it's <laughs> well. And one last thing on this, um, let's just go to what we know about how to prevent crime, and it isn't severity of punishment so much as it is certainty of punishment, right? right Speed right, and right, certainty, right. application, mm -hmm. right? Right. A little severity um, would be nice, but I agree with you. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that in this context, but it's less important than certainty. Um, any other questions there that jumped out at you, Sarah? I was going to uh, pull one from Steve Gordon. Is there anything in uh, the FBI case, the McGonagall case, that could point to broader involvement with other agents? Is this could this conceivably part, be part of a broader conspiracy? I think usually when you have a a spy, I mean, you could of course have a spy ring, but 
at least in recent history, most of the spies with the most um, with ac access to the most damaging information are operating on their own, precisely because including others greatly uh, increases the likelihood of getting caught. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope not. I also think it's worth noting because someone asked why he wasn't charged with treason. Um, you know, there's a statutory definition of treason, uh, you know, basically war against the United States, aiding and abetting enemies of the United States. Here, he was very, very specifically trying to help the oligarch circumvent sanctions, U.S. sanctions. And so that's why everything about this is about the sanctions and it's not really treason. And that does make it a little different than a traditional spy case. This wasn't quite the same as trying to help a foreign government against the United States. This was a guy who, you know, wanted his vacation homes back or whatever, you know, his uh, his bank accounts unfrozen and things like that. Um, so in that's the one way in which I think it is less serious than than some of these others. Um, I think the big question, Steve, that I saw in the comments was, how does it affect 2024, all of this? <laughs> yeah, it does it. I mean, is this a, yeah. kind of a pox on, on everyone's house or not? I mean, certainly I think it, it, it in the short term, it, um, it makes more plausible some of the arguments that Republicans were making as indictments of the FBI, right? Um, if this has been a case that that Donald Trump and others have been making, I think sometimes justifiably, sometimes hilariously, uh, misleadingly, um, it, it it would seem to uh, to support the the broader claims that the FBI is the the gang who couldn't shoot straight. Um, does it have more weight than that, Jonah? Well, again, I think the it it, it muddies a lot of narratives because. I mean, the one of the one of the conceptual innovations that Trump essentially introduced on the American right is that the standard criticism from the American right of the government was that it was too big, too stupid, and too incompetent. And um, um, and well, no, I'm sorry. Let me. That's the wrong way to put it. Trump's indictment of of the government was that it was too big, too stupid, and too incompetent, that we're losers, right? That nobody respects mm -hmm. us and all that kind of stuff. The indictment of the FBI that you get from Trumpies is that it is super competent. It is weaponizing the agency, right? That it is behind a lot of deep state, state conspiracy stuff. And these stories, whether it's McGonagall in, in New York or the classification stuff or the haphazard thing just makes it seem like no one knows what they're doing and that it's not a powerful um omnicompetent conspiracy the thing where i think where it's weird I, I keep trying to like think of an analogy in the past there's a it feels a little bit like the zoe baird period where like you couldn't appoint anybody to the government because they all failed to pay the social security taxes on their nannies Right. Or on right. their or, or on their yard workers or whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> remember that. Yeah. Um, and then for a while you couldn't appoint anybody to the Supreme Court because if they smoked weed, it was a problem. It was like the Ginsburg thing, right? Um, except I don't think it's gonna work like that. I think because everybody who's already been elected looks like they've screwed this stuff up, it's gonna give everybody a pass. I think this helps Trump enormously. It certainly helps Trump legally just in terms of it makes it much more difficult to prosecute him. But the reason that. why it makes it much more difficult to prosecute him is also why it helps him politically, because it just muddies the entire situation. And while we can all sit here and explain with a Venn diagrams and charts about why what Trump did was much worse than what Biden probably did. Um, uh, to the normal person, it just sounds like Trump's right. Everybody does it. And that's good for Trump. OK. Um... Moving on to this last, um, what I hope will be a fun part of our, our conversation. Um, David doesn't know this, but we'd like to do something of a mini roast of, oh, no. of David here. Just consisting of a couple of innocent questions. Um, you'll have plenty of time to respond, David. We believe in equal time. 
Um, I only have a couple. But whether questions. your mic will be on is another question. But you will have time <laughs> yeah. to respond. Yeah, Ryan, are you ready to mute, mute David? Um, we, I think, Jonah and Sarah have some some observations that they'd like to uh, to offer things that they've learned after working with you for for three years. But before we get to that, um, there are just a couple of questions that I'd like to pose to them. Um, first question. Just for Sarah and Jonah, what is David's most embarrassing pop culture take? I, I don't uh, have I mean, one. We don't have to go through the Aquaman embarrassment <laughs> any more than we already have. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, the problem, this is the problem when you give everything four stars. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, how can you criticize one take over another take? Everything is the best thing he's ever seen. <laughs> I had just taken a drink. <laughs> I remember when we used to do sort of like more cultural stuff on advisory opinions and it'd be like, oh, this like thing that we're watching or whatever. And like it did, it got a little weird because every single thing David loved. <laughs> so it was sort of like then me crapping on, you know, stuff that was mediocre and David being like, yeah, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah, what was the what what was the what's the real story with the Aquaman stuff? I mean, nobody like almost literally nobody thought that was a good movie what are you other than david about? french no yeah, like like there there were there were people who enjoyed it in the sort of you know mm, this is good chewing gum kind of way uh <laughs> but you know david is like sharks with lasers yeah four stars <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> That was the essence of it. You know, did like, like Sharknado? I feel like he probably did. I only well, saw I the original Sharknado. Sharknado and it was glorious. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the moment when when Aquaman was next level for me, because I was already sold by the time the sharks with lasers happened at the at the climax. Dude, you, you were, were sold, sold by the trailer. trailer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when it like hit a you had me at Aqua. <laughs> when it hit transcendent levels was when they're flying over the Sahara Desert and Toto's Africa comes on, except Pitbull's adaptation. And it was like Pitbull doing Toto's Africa while Aquaman is in the desert. This is too good. Like, this is just great. You know that Toto's Africa as covered by Weezer is Scott and I's song. No, really? Joke. It is actually our song. And the reason in part is because it will play like randomly at like Home Depot. And so I will like dance on Scott <laughs> in the Home Depot. And I think it's just peak marriage. Um, he's kind of horrified. If y'all know Scott, he's actually a pretty private reserve. No, we didn't have, we didn't have a wedding. We eloped, but you know, um, I decided to pick a song anyway. And I picked Toto's Africa. <laughs> yeah. My question Love is it. why would anybody cover Toto's Africa. Do you know the story actually, behind it? There actually is. A good it's story. a bad song. So this, this. Now that now ever, I, I guarantee you, like fifty percent of the people watching right now have it go, going through their head, and will for the next three hours boom, until boom, they go boom, to bed boom, boom, boom. because that's what it does. It's an epic song. This young girl was basically asking them, like, kept asking on Twitter for them to cover Toto's Africa, and it was like turned into a joke, and then. They finally did it as like a joke, except it turned into like a hit song. <laughs> and it started on Twitter. I mean, that makes this story the the worst possible story. I mean, it is it's sort of the culmination of all the badness uh, that we've been <laughs> that we've been talking about. OK, I have a second question um, and I have an answer to this one. Which of David's weird backgrounds was the worst? on these calls or on our company zoom calls was there anything that stood out to you that was the worst or the weirdest feature of his background i liked every time we had a guest and they were like oh is that michael jordan or something with like the basketball posters and he would get really offended <laughs> like these would be like real people who don't know david um, <laughs> and it was like their first introduction to him as he gets like really puffed up about the Grizzlies and some other nonsense. No, wait, wait, nonsense. <laughs> it's fine most... right now. I can see it. 
this is the most exciting young player in the NBA. Like people need to know, put some respect on his John Morant's name, Sarah. It's like slung on the back of a bench. A pew. It's a pew. Yeah. Also known as a church bench, but yeah. Yeah. That's not plain to type at all there, David. Uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I have to say, I have never had a huge, uh, be in my bonnet about the backgrounds of David's Zoom calls. Um, well, look at your background. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, there was a time where he had all that plastic tarp down on the ground and there was a lot of blood, but that was, that just seemed like we caught him off guard. <laughs> that, that was, was intimidating. That yeah, wasn't, that was, yeah, that was embarrassing. <laughs> but do you remember the time? I think it was on one of the early dispatch lives when, when he was displaying those swords and somebody asked about him and then he got up and he showed us the sword and he did sort right of there. a sword Go get it. a sword thing. Well that that's not the the sword. That's my cavalry saber. So that I have two swords in here. I have a broadsword that's Aragorn's Endural from Lord of the Rings and then yeah, my cavalry yes, that saber. Was, yes, yeah, I'm not going to criticize him about that. I mean, I mean God, he's married, right? Like, <laughs> Seriously. Jonah knows that my swords will come in handy during the zombie apocalypse. Exactly. And everyone's run out of ammunition. That's why I keep my handheld chainsaw. <laughs> hey, David, have you been watching The Last of Us? Not yet. And I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that it's a not yet. We do one thing. And Sarah, you've yep. influenced me. We like to do it where we can binge. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's so this was week. this turned into a thing in my house because Scott wanted to watch it as it came out and I want to binge and we're compromising it. We're watching it as it comes out. Scott had played the whole video game, so he's very into it. Um, but I have to say the whole scientific premise that fungus doesn't live in humans and we have no ability to fight fungus is a weird premise. Mm-hmm. And I feel like women in particular are like, what? <laughs> i am watching blackbird after seeing jonah's uh jonah's endorsement and it's good it's really really good it's, it's dark really good it's dark it's not, the, it's not the feel good show of the year do not uh, gather the kids around to watch this show yeah, yeah but it's really but it's, good. it's 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 really solid mm-hmm. uh, particularly the guy which is something walker walter the guy who yeah. plays the serial killer is just phenomenal and Taryn Egerton, who is playing the sort of the drug runner, um, mm-hmm. is doing a really good job, but it's it's hard to pay tribute to him because he's so annoying mm-hmm. that you can't like him, at least yet. But he's really good at being annoying. So, yeah. yeah. I won't give you any spoilers. I mean, but yeah, like he's basically the Steve A's of cocaine dealing. <laughs> That's... Man, we're we're so much. Steve on the same would be wavelength. the most annoying cocaine dealer ever, and it says something, by the way, that Dave it's super good, is yeah, less annoying cocaine dealer. <laughs> super good price for a kilo, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this almost turned into more of a roast of Steve. Yeah, I know. So I know. Fair. I like where this is. Which headed. is which is like any time we get together, frankly, <laughs> right? You guys take it to pop culture. There's usually some stupid sci-fi reference, and then it all turns back to me. So, um, Joan and Sarah, you each had um, sort of special, touching, poignant um, things that you wanted to mention about the three years that you've worked with David. The things that have sort of touched you the most that you that you remember most that stand out. <laughs> Um, Sarah, Sarah, you want to go first? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say something nice about David when I'm going to keep doing advisory opinions. He's not I mean, dead. I He's like, I'm literally doing a podcast with him tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> I, I, I think they should take that audio and just stop you at David and put it in the lead into AO as part of the new audio. Like, I'm not going to say something nice about David full out. Yeah. So, so to be clear, um, I guess my sarcasm went, was missed. (laughs) You each offered, um, shots at David in our text. I just really appreciate how David has never tried to make me feel, um, you know, inferior intellectually as a lawyer, as someone who's not elderly, because, and the way he does that, I think most effectively is by um, intentionally, obviously, um, mispronouncing every big word he tries to say <laughs> in order to make me feel <laughs> yeah, yeah. better. So like, 
just this is the last week. Um, oh no. Hamlin College, Hamline, Banal, Banal. Yeah, I, I caught that one. That was a that made me a little uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what are some of the all the legal terms? Oh, Dispatch. you still can't say the word certiorari. I don't think so we've ever done that in one take on the podcast. Like you no. guys think he can say it because you hear the edited version, but every time he just goes <laughs> surf for far. <laughs> it is as difficult for me as nuclear is for George W. Bush. <laughs> so I just, I know you do that for my benefit and it does, it builds me up. It builds mm -hmm. my confidence. And I just, I so appreciate that as a coworker. So it's funny you bring this up because I listened to that episode where you're talking about the Grand jury versus the oh. petty jury. What are you? What is like uh, petty yeah. jury? Yeah, yeah. You, you guys left me a little confused about the correct pronunciation there. But what was interesting was I can't remember exactly what the phrase was, but David's explanation for how to pronounce something completely and 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 Sarah says like, oh, David doesn't know how to pronounce big words. He doesn't know how to pronounce little words like gif. And his explanation <laughs> in his thing basically undercut his defense for why he calls it, he, he uses the word for that peanut butter brand um, to describe gifts. And um, and I almost got into an accident thinking, I, I, I almost texted you guys while I was driving. I was so annoyed um, with the uh, with, with all of that. But um, uh, no, I, I, like, I, I just, I don't have any grand, in, you know, and it, to me, this feels like a little bit like a wake because, you know, David's dead to me now. Um, but I want to correct the uh, Steve when he says that um, I've worked with David for three years. I worked with David collectively for like 14 years or something like that or 12 oh, years. Gosh. It's a yeah, long time. True. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, don't forget, I was on the presidential campaign. Correct. <laughs> we, French for president. Yes. Oh, I did not yep. realize you were part of that juggernaut. Yes. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So I mean, none of those none of those years matter because they weren't at the dispatch. Obviously, fair, that's fair. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, because look, I mean, as we know, it's the friends we made along the way. And um, <laughs> um, I will say that uh, um, having known David, worked with David, uh, been friends with David for a very long time. I've only known Sarah for like three years now, really. And uh way more comfortable cursing in front of Sarah than I am in front of David. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, after, after all these years, you're still not comfortable, Jonah. Well, it's, it's the thing is, it's like, uh, what well, set asks the guy with the pew in his <laughs> office. Um, Jonah, the best part about the podcasting with David is anytime you bring up anything vaguely, like banal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> David just like, turns bright red. Yeah, no. Well, no, that, that's that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is where he is so deep in his Ned Flandersness that he doesn't even know the dirty connotation of the thing. And then he puts the onus on you to like yeah. say, so there's this thing where people do carnal things and, and, and you know Jonah what? and I are them. like a walking HR violation Steve <laughs> knows what we're saying because he was like a cool kid in high school and he doesn't like it but David mm. doesn't even know that's right <laughs> um, and then when it's explained it gets um like uh Valerie uh Valerie <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing is like anything that has to be explained is so it's like all explanations ruin jokes you know yeah. like if you have to like, let's put it this way. True. I've mentioned this a bunch of times on the podcast. One of my mom's favorite jokes was what's the difference between um, erotic and kinky? Um, erotic is when you use a feather and kinky is when you use the whole chicken. And um, <laughs> if you actually have to, if someone doesn't get that and you have to explain what someone might do with the chicken, it just makes it so <laughs> much worse. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Well, it's nine o'clock. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, don't I, I sort of hope that we've lost people along the way um, <laughs> before we before we got to this point. Um, David, you're not really going anywhere, but do you have any? I'll give you an opportunity for a rejoinder, a parting thought. 
a parting shot at either Sarah I, or, or Jonah since I was I have no parting shots because it's not you know not really parting fully but I just want to say I love the dispatch I love what we have been building together over these last three years and it is not often that you see a sort of a mission statement and a a, a goal like actually come to life in the in the way that you mapped it out to me when we met for like three hours in Starbucks in Pentagon City. And um, it, it's been one of the great privileges of my life to see this happen because it is very easy to curse the darkness. It is a lot harder to light a candle. And in our business, we're in the cursing the darkness business, right? I mean, that's, you know, what you do is this is wrong. This is bad. This, But you've built something. You've built something. We've built something that I think is lighting a candle. And that is hard to do. And it has been a great privilege to be a part of it and to continue to do, to be a part of it. And uh, I just wish people could kind of get a look at our culture here. Um, we have a real, a, a truly a healthy, joyful culture. Not to say it's not, nothing's perfect, but we have a healthy, joyful culture that is committed to doing the right thing the right way. And I couldn't be prouder to have been a part of it, to be a part of it. And more honored that you asked me to join early on. Um, and, and I will never forget popping onto Slack the first time when there was no announcement made that I was joining. <laughs> Declan texted me and was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. And walking into that first conference room in AEI, where we had the full staff gathered. And this was even before that. That's when y'all told me, Hey, Sarah's coming. And I was like, yes. And there was so few of us and, you know, planning what we were going to do and what we we're going to be and what all this was going to look like. And then this summer, this fall getting together um, at an undisclosed location. <laughs> and it was tough for one big room to contain all of us. And and to talk about what we have done and what we are going to do, um, it was, you know, it was powerful. Like it was, it kind of choked me up a little bit. I got to confess that um, to see that because um, you sold me on the mission and then to actually out go out and do it and to be a part of that. That's just been, it's been awesome. It's just been awesome. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I will, I will do something I hate to do. Um, which is give Jonah credit. Um, Jonah, <laughs> early on, as we were first talking about building this thing, said that one of the reasons he was most interested in giving it a shot, even when a lot of people thought we were sort of crazy for doing it, was because he wanted to build an institution and he wanted to mm -hmm. do something that would uh, amplify sort of the things that we saw as our mission um, be, beyond the, you know, certainly through the work that we did at the dispatch, but beyond that. And I can't think of a, of a better way to, to do that than to, to have you join the New York times and, and have your brand of thoughtful conservatism in front of 11 million. What is it? 11 million times subscribers. We're catching you. We're coming for you. Um, but, but to have that, um, you know, amplified, um, I, I sent a, a note to, to we've got a board meeting tomorrow and I was describing to the board um, you're leaving us and staying with us and and said, you know, I think of David as a dispatchian conservative mm -hmm. and uh, to have you making that argument on a, on a big, big platform like that, um, that's sort of its own reward. We'll, we'll miss you every Sunday, every Tuesday and all of our, our meetings. Um, we're not kicking you off of Slack. You're staying in the, fantasy football league because yes. we all need somebody who's easy to beat um <laughs> but we'll uh we'll look forward to having you continue to to do advisory opinions with us and make occasional appearances here and and on the podcast and, and dispatch conservative around. is a thing it's it a thing definitely a thing yeah, yeah. A thing. absolutely Good. and i just i just want i will just nitpick some of 
Steve's wording insofar as when he says it's a reward, you know, in its own way that you're going to the times, I'd say it's a consolation prize that you're going to the times. It's it's not a reward because, um, and, and I just, I want to lay the marker down. I've said this in private, I've said it in public. So it's not like anything, the ideal scenario from our institutional perspective is that you go, you do great things, you take the fight, you, 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 because you're, you tend to be a contrarian and you like to, to take the fight where the, the, the opponent is thickest, um, that you start picking all sorts of right wing fights against your readers, against the Times readers. And even though they swore to you that they won't cancel you and they won't fire you for <laughs> whatever, you get 18 months in, you make some money, and then you're just, and then they, they, they fire you because you uh, say something utterly defensible. And, um, and then you come back to us and we get to say, you know, we're, we are the safe haven for people. Who uh, you know the the time they're too too controversial for the New York Times, and uh, and then we get to have you back in the fold. So, uh, and the great thing about this scenario is, I think there's at least a fifty percent like chance that it actually happens. So, <laughs> oh man, you're making me nervous, Jonah. Okay, we'll run a pool on what it might be. Um, Aquaman takes. Uh, no, no, I can win that argument. I can win that. Well, thank you, uh, David, for everything. Um, Sarah, you can continue to to taunt him and haunt him uh, on advisory opinions. Uh, but thank you for everything you've done. Look forward to having you stick around. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We went a little bit over, but I think it was worth it. Um, have a good night. Happy birthday, David. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Are we clear? Hey, Ryan usually comes on and says so. Otherwise, it's